This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Wendy Sturgar. Wendy Sturgar is an award-winning entrepreneur and the founder and CEO of Good Clean Love, a pioneer in the organic personal care product industry. A sexual health educator and loveologist, Wendy is the featured writer at the award-winning blog, Making Love Sustainable. She's the author of Love That Works, a guide to enduring intimacy, and with Sounds True, a new book called Sex That Works, an intimate guide to awakening your erotic life, where she offers healing insights, potent practices for you alone and with your partner, and guidance drawn from her marriage of over 30 years and her work with thousands of people to encourage the full awakening and expression of your erotic life. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Wendy and I spoke about her company, Good Clean Love, and how she found her vocation as a loveologist. We also talked about what some of the biggest obstacles are that people face for achieving sexual pleasure, and how a true definition of sexual freedom is taking responsibility for one's own sexual needs. We talked about long-term monogamy and how to keep a committed relationship passionate and sexually engaging, the importance of being sexually educated and informed, how to have a healthy fantasy life, and what it means to grow up sexually. Here's my conversation on Sex That Works with Wendy Sturgar. Wendy, we're going to spend the next hour or so talking about your new book, Sex That Works. And I noticed right here at the outset that I feel a little nervous, you could say even shy, something like that, that it's edgy to talk about sex publicly for an hour. And I I wanted to begin there with your thoughts on having these kinds of open conversations about sex, especially for people who find it edgy. Um, so I guess I'd say a couple of things. One is that um, the more comfortable um, the person you're talking to is about sex, the more comfortable we become, right? So I used to see this when I would try to sell product. And, you know, if, no, you could never have somebody in that role that was not really solid in their own sense of who they were as a sexual human being. And so I think partly a lot of times the conversation is so uncomfortable because because we we sort of bounce off of each other's discomfort. So anyway, you don't need to be uncomfortable because my comfort will carry you. Um, 
and bring you into that. And, um, and, you know, and it's a strange thing to have something that is so fundamental to who we are as human beings be also at once so taboo. You know, I think there's a lot of things to that. Um, but, you know, after we eat, sleep, and drink, you know, um, the next thing we are is sexual beings. And so my whole thing for much of my life has been just if we could just get over it and just be comfortable in that space, um, so many other issues would be alleviated as well. What do you mean by that, other issues would be alleviated? You know, our, our sexuality is so central to our soul, you know, to, to how we know ourselves. And so to the degree that we give it so little language and airtime and we push it down and we repress it, it twists up all these other parts of who we are and our ability to interact in the world. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I mean is that um, in my mind, you know, having a sex life that works is so foundational to having a life that works. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about this title, Sex That Works. You know, you see lots of books, passionate sex, erotic sex, ecstatic sex, blissful sex, sex that works. How did you come up with that title for what you wanted to communicate to the world about sex? Um, You know, Sigmund Freud said this thing um, that um, love and work is the cornerstone of our humanity. So... Um, I really believe that um, sex as being part of loving relationships, which is really how I teach about sex, is that, you know, that it's, that it's a really important physical engagement of loving relationships. But I think it's, it's foundational to, um, to a life that works, like I was saying. And so, um, so it's like sometimes our sex life is not blissful or ecstatic or, you know, or, you know, orgasmic. Um, but if we continuously come to it with curiosity and courage and we just get to a place where our sex life works, which is to say that we don't abandon it, we don't blame other people for it, we can hold it as a part of our own integrity responsibility of what it is to be whole, um, then, then from that workable place, you know, sex can grow and evolve through all life stages into something that will surprise you continuously. Okay, Wendy, I'm going to lean into your comfortableness in talking about <laughs> sex. And uh, here we go. I think it would be wonderful if you could tell our listeners how this became the vocational focus of your life, sex education and being what you call a loveologist. Yeah, so, you know, I get a lot of heat for that loveologist word, and it's, I mean, I want to say that it's sort of, first of all, the term was coined for me one time early on when I met you um, years and years ago, and I was just trying to figure out really what my job was. And I was selling different kinds of love products. But really the thing that I always had passion about was really helping people love. And so one guy, you know, in some green festival in L.A. said to me, you're like a, like a, like a love, like a loveologist. And I thought, yeah, you know, I kind of am because in my mind, that's somebody that studies and writes and thinks and teaches about love, sexual love being part of that. Um, 
And so, um, so, you know, and for me, when I started making love products and thinking about selling them, you know, I was at a really challenging crossroads in my marriage. Um, you know, sex was the one thing that generally worked for us, but after I had four kids, was not working as well, and the products on the market made me sick. And so I was really driven to sort of save my own marriage um, To when I was doing a lot of investigating and trying to come up with solutions. And, um, and so, yeah, necessity was the mother of invention in that. And then I think, you know, growing up in a extremely dysfunctional home um, where love was not leading at all, um, I think probably that upbringing made me, I mean, I, I just feel like everything that you look at in my life is geared back to sort of trying to resolve those issues and understand what is family and how do people love over time. And um, and so the sexual love as a, sort of a really critical component of that, um, which in some ways came easily to me as a child. I was pretty early orgasmic, even though I didn't understand it, probably had a lot of shame about it, but, you know, was intrigued anyway and not afraid of it. I didn't grow up in a church setting, so I didn't have a lot of that stuff blocking me, I think, about knowing that and understanding it. So um, I probably had some freedom about sort of approaching it. And um, and maybe I'm kind of bold. I'm a Scorpio, for whatever that's worth. So probably pretty sexual in that way. I think it was just all those things that kind of came together. And um, you know, when my kids were little, when I first started this business, they were like three to fourteen at the time. And um, and they, you know, they used to say to me, "Okay, you don't have a job, mom. Don't talk about what you do." You know, and even just in my own family unit, there was a lot of sort of fear or shame around that because I had come from school reform work right before that and actually started Good Clean Love so that I could try to fund a peace academy for children. So, you know, it was all kind of like, it wasn't like some business plan that got me here. It was just like life that just sort of, you know, if you pay attention, it'll teach you where to go, I think. Now, for listeners who are just getting introduced to Good Clean Love for the first time, you mentioned that you and I met, and we met at a trade show that was for the natural products industry almost two decades ago, 15 years ago, something like that. Mm -hmm. Good Clean Love sells natural lubrication. You said that there were no products on the market that would fit the needs that you had. What were the needs that you had that you couldn't find products for? You know, most of the products on the market at that point were petrochemical-based products. So, you know, if you'd go to the doctor, which I did, you know, and it was like, well, you know, I, I have a lot of pain with sex and extremely common, very, very common symptom. And so, you know, when pain with sex is goes unattended, then what will happen is that you tend to lose your libido because, you know, your body's kind of already sort of preparing to be have pain. And so then, you're, you know, your desire doesn't come up and, you know, and then you get dryness. And it's like this whole sort of syndrome that one thing creates next. And I, you know, I was pretty dependent on a sex life that works because, you know, I had four kids. I, I grew up in a divorce. I didn't want to get divorced. 
And so, yeah, we started experimenting first with uh, more natural aphrodisiac products that I could make at home. So for a long time, we made our own products. And then as it grew and people started asking for more like the personal lubricant line, you know, we spent a long time trying to learn how to do that without any petrochemicals. And now we have really, I think, the fast, actually, we do have the fastest growing organic lubricant product on the market. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's what, that was an interesting journey and really was the only thing. I don't have a, I'm not a sex professor. You know, I don't have a degree in sexology. And so, um, so, but talking to people for decades about their intimate lives and writing columns that's how I learned about everything I wrote in Sex That Works. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to get right into some of the teachings, if you will, from Sex That Works, because it's a remarkable book, Wendy. There's so much in it. And I want to start off right with your introduction, where you say, having good sex, sex that works, depends on learning to feel And I want to talk right about that. You end the book on the note, feel everything. And you're emphasizing this idea that we have to be willing to feel the painful parts of our lives as well as the blissful parts if we're going to have the kind of ecstatic sex life we want. And so talk about that, the emphasis you place on feeling everything. Yeah, you know, so you have so many teachers in your your Sounds True family that talk about feeling and the capacity to feel and 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 how frightening it is how we how we lose touch with that through our digital devices and all that but um you know certainly our sex our sexuality and our libido is completely tied to that capacity to feel and so you know we there's this strange idea we have that we can discern or that we can choose well I'm not going to feel this bad thing and and we don't I mean it's just kind of this naive craziness where we think we can choose not to feel this but that it won't impact our capacity to feel everything and the truth is that the more things we refuse to feel the more other things we lose the capacity to feel and i think that explains a lot about what is happening in in so many people's sexuality um so you know for uh, you know for me um when i am unable to experience my own emotions i i'm not really capable at almost anything else <laughs> So that might be specific to me, but I don't think it is. And um, and so that's why, I mean, I, you know, I, I think the book really in a lot of ways is about um, having the courage and the curiosity to feel in general so that you can focus that attention um, and that sensation on your sexual self. But you can't do it if the door is closed anywhere else. That's the point. Mm-hmm. And then you have a whole chapter later in the book on courage. And, you know, you state that it takes courage to overcome our sexual inhibitions and fears. So talk about the kind of courage you mean. And also, how do we cultivate it? How do we actually cultivate the kind of courage you're pointing to? Um, you know, so courage, you know, is that word that comes from the heart in French. And... um and so I think, you know, courage is actually 
I think, at the base or the foundational experience of feeling. You know, it's the thing that allows us to open and and let things move through us. And so, um, uh, you know, the most mysterious place that we experience ourselves in terms of boundary and in terms of sort of inhabiting each other's bodies is our sexual selves. And so um, if you can't bring that opening of your heart um, and the vulnerability, you know, to it, then uh, it's it's compromised, you know. And um, so I think, you know, in the chapter, and I don't have the book right in front of me. I can't wait till I get the copies. I think they're coming soon. Um, but in the chapter, it's broken down into four different qualities of courage, um and so one is about vulnerability and you know and you know we know that there's you know many many books that are written about vulnerability and you know you know it's not like anybody has sort of the the master's degree on that because truly every time we face a situation that makes us feel more vulnerable than we felt before um you know, it's a real challenge. It's a it's a heart challenge of courage, um, and I think maybe persistence is in there of just like coming back to it and 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 uh, and and asking a different question. You know, looking at the same place but with an open heart, with a vulnerable space in you, and that you um, that you can that you can um, try and see it with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm wondering if you can talk more about courage and communicating about sex with your partner and helping people to do that. Yeah, that's actually probably one of the most frightening places of all um, for most people, partly because I was saying earlier, you know, a lot of people don't have their own, have much language at all for their sexuality. Um, and, you know, this kind of goes back to the last 30 years of just say no education. And so, you know, in many states in this, in this country, you know, sex education is maybe body parts, um, and, um, in separate rooms, girls and boys, and, you know, there's nothing relational that's mentioned and, and not even really correct anatomy in a lot of, in a lot of situations. So, you know, we're really groping in the dark. A lot of people are groping in the dark when it comes to having a language that they feel they can express what they want or that it's even okay to say what they want about their their sexual desires. So it's 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 a multi-layered problem um and uh and I think one of the things we talk about in the chapter there is just, you know, really one of the most courageous things you can do is take charge of your own education, right? Like, you know, I we give a lot of resources in the book and you have a lot of other writers in the Sounds True family that address these things too, and so you become comfortable with some words, right? And, you know, we do a lot of things um, where we try to help young people develop language, and I know I was in a focus group with like 20, 19-year-olds, and I'm like, okay, how? what words could we say if this doesn't feel comfortable for you? It was a, it was a conversation about consent, 
and 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 the only thing this room of 20 19 20 year old kids smart people that they could come up with is are you down with what's going down literally those were the only words they had so um so it's a big problem it's a big problem to 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 uh to own a language that uh that you can uh express yourself sexually and i want to say that i myself even though i wrote this book and i feel like there's a lot of things i understand about it you know i myself struggle sometimes and i talk about it in the book um about these places about how to reflect back what's working or not working for me with my husband and that's like 30 years in Right? Like, you know, I've had sex, I don't know, three million, not three million, but 3,000 times, say, in 30 years, maybe more, I don't know. Um, but, you know, still there's this, these moments where I have to overcome something to say this doesn't work or why is this happening like this or um, can we try this or, you know, you know, you have all these fingers, they're so dexterous. Can you can you experiment with your fingers? You know? And we're afraid we're gonna hurt somebody's feeling feelings or we're gonna somehow turn them off. But really there's a lot of studies that are mentioned in the book that like if you would only give somebody a little bit of information they would it's like it gets better. So that is really a big um a big place where courage evolves in us and education as you know is sort of the basis i think of all of those those turns in our lives where we start to gain language and then we start to have confidence in that language and and then we start to have confidence that we know what we know and we can say it well a different way of getting at courage would be what have you seen stops people from really owning their own sexuality and their own sexual pleasure. What do you see as the biggest obstacles? I think for a lot of people, shame is a big, big one. And, um, you know, shame is such an interesting and challenging emotion because it's another thing that doesn't have a lot of language usually. And a lot of times, actually, people can't even figure out where it's sourced from, you know. So... Um, and it's so layered culturally, you know, um, like I said, I didn't kind of have this happen to me in a religious setting, but so, so many people do. Um, and, um, you know, and if it wasn't that, then, you know, the discomfort that we get ancestrally, whether it's our parents or, you know, each time it goes down a generation, there's another kind of twist that happens to it, you know, where, I mean, it, it, think about this, like it was only a hundred years ago that that they medically used to put these sharp pronged belts on a boy's penis because if he would, if he would have an erection and that was like a medical, that was a medical treatment. So when you think about how archaic our history has been, and even to this day, I mean, I talk about in the book a couple places this global unconscious think that I think that I believe that we all kind of participate in when it comes to human sexuality. And, you know, on this planet right now today, um, sex is used as a weapon. And, um, and, and there's a lot of terror 
You know, young children are, you know, and have been, you know, in every country, um, sort of engaged in sexual activities that was way beyond their capacity to understand what was happening to them. And so, you know, those fears, I think, filter into some space that really affects all of us. Mm-hmm. So I think I think I think you know it's a spiritual thing because really like if you think about sex at its purest form and and who we are as erotic beings you know that is I believe really deeply connected to our soul. So to the degree that that has been a silenced part of us and an inaccessible part of us and that there's been so much hurtful action that's happened over centuries on this planet, um, we're, we all battle that when we come to find our sexual, our own sexual courage. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to SoundsTrue.com backslash free. That's SoundsTrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. You know, I love the way Wendy, you begin the book with chapter one being on freedom. And it's very surprising because, of course, thinking about sexual freedom, I wasn't sure what to expect with chapter one being called freedom. And then I read, authentic sexual freedom means taking responsibility for our own sexual needs. And I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit. That's freedom, taking responsibility for our own sexual needs. Yeah, you know, it's so weird because, um, especially in our culture in the last 10 to 20 years, there. but I, I've really seen it a lot in the last 10, partly maybe because raising kids, I'm sort of watching this happen, you know, as they go to university. Um, but, you know, and, and I think partly it's these digital apps where um, somehow there's been this weird, there's been some super interesting books written about this too from women's perspectives, where somehow this equality of sexuality meant now everybody was hooking up. So instead of like, you know, when it, how it was when I was younger, that, you know, you didn't just give your sexuality away without even going to dinner, you know, and you know, this whole slut shaming and all this stuff that goes with it. It's like there came to this place of this free for all, this swipe right, swipe left and and you know, and the idea that you could just have sex with a stranger and enjoy it, I think is just such a odd circumstance that we've come to and many women realize of course now that they, it's not that pleasurable that you know that uh that really, you know, women's pleasure really gets left behind in this form of freedom and that that there's a lot of emotional responsibility that that when you don't have that it it does it just interferes with your capacity for pleasure um so i think there's a there's a slow waking up to that but i think that the the combination of those 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 events has has made people misunderstand sexual freedom as sexual license like i can do whatever i want you know and 
and doing whatever I want, you know, it, it doesn't matter what the consequences of that are. But truly, you know, young women who go ahead and do whatever they want, and I've seen this happen with my daughters, um, you know, then um, really suffer the consequences of this erotic damage that we can do to ourselves at a pretty young age, you know, where we have sex with somebody who doesn't care about us, um, and we have sex that maybe is a dangerous situation where we start to lose confidence in our own ability to judge what's safe for us, um, and um, and the whole thing is just kind of sold short as though it was nothing, even though you're giving the deepest part of yourself to somebody, um, and that's supposed to feel normal afterwards. All of those things create these these erotic damage points that, you know, you stack up just a few of them, and people start to really not trust themselves sexually. So that's why I think this idea that, you know, real freedom and not just sexual freedom, but any freedom, comes from this mature understanding that you alone are responsible for the situations that you create in your life. I mean, I'm not saying like in this ultra-independent way, but I'm just saying to the degree that we are not blaming somebody or waiting for somebody to make it right for us, but that we really have that that responsibility to make choices for ourselves that we can live with. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's really a very, yeah, I mean, it's a very profound idea in terms of sex that works, starting the book on that note, in yeah. that, you know, it's not my, my partner doesn't do this or doesn't do that, or I wish my partner wanted to have sex more or whatever it might be. You're saying that this grown-up quality, and you talk about that growing up sexually, comes from beginning from the place of, I'm responsible for my own sexual needs. I mean, maybe this is really obvious to people. I thought it was a very, very important point. I don't know if it's obvious to people. You know, again, and that kind of comes back to the thing we were talking about earlier, which is that, you know, this. I mean, when you think about language acquisition, and even like refugees who come over, there, I knew some people who adopted children who were like 9 and 11, and it was so important that they learned words that could keep up with their thinking, because otherwise what happens when you don't have a representation for your, for your thoughts you know, for your emotions, you lose the capacity to know them. And that when that happens over time, um, then it's super easy to see how people blame other people or hold other people responsible for their sexual pleasure. You know, if you've never had an orgasm on your own, and the only time you've ever had one, even though you might not be able to repeat it, is with Peter or this guy or this woman, um, you know, then, you know, then you, you, you're dependent on that person to know that that really intimate part of who you are. So, you know, one of the things I would always teach my my kids and anybody who would listen is that masturbation is such a important they call it the foundation of our sexuality because if you don't if you don't have that language with yourself, you know, then how could anybody else learn it from you? I thought it was interesting in sex that works that you had a pretty balanced view of masturbation. On the one hand, you were very enthusiastic about people masturbating, even in the midst of a a long-term relationship or even while with one's partner. But at the same time, you talked about not getting overly dependent on masturbation as the only way 
that you could experience arousal. So maybe talk about that balance, if you will. Um, you know, um, so, you know, it's it's a strange thing. There have been people who've come to me and said, you know, I can't even say that word to my partner. You know, like I've been married to this person for 20 years. Um, and so just, uh, I, you know, I don't even know what to say sometimes when people say things like that to me. You know, but what I would say is Well, it's that, like an admission of defeat or something. You know, I'm masturbating because there's something between us that's not fulfilling enough. Well, I, maybe, I don't know, but, you know, the thing is, is that, um, so what I would say about masturbation is that, uh, you know, it is the way we, it's the most common sexual act on the planet, so it's totally normal, and more people do it than you would imagine do it, um, although seems like recently women, some women are doing it less. Um, but historically, it is the most common act. And it's even something that little babies do that. I mean, before they know they're doing that, you know, they find their way to that part of their body and they have pleasure that's very innocent but genuine. You know, I remember when I would see that with my, my sons and I'd be like, oh, wow, they already found that. You know, so, um, uh, but, you know, but a lot of people, like I said, for all those reasons about shame and sort of the shrouded pain over sexuality, really are afraid of uh, sort of discovering that. And they're certainly afraid about sharing the fact that they do that. Or there's this idea that, you know, if I'm in a relationship, I think somebody actually said this to me in a blog. It's like, well, why would I do that? He should be responsible for that, my partner. You know, I'm in a relationship. Why would I need to do that? And I think it's just totally missing the boat because nobody is going to know the kind of touch and where you like to be touched and what it is that turns that on for you better than you. And when you're comfortable with that, you start to have a language to share what, how you want to be touched by somebody else. And, you know, and when you're with somebody for a long time, mutual masturbation is really exciting, you know, where people are either touching each other simultaneously or touching themselves simultaneously. And it's not something that gets a lot of airplay, but um, it's definitely um, a skill. But at that same time, the balance part is that if that's the only way you have access to your sexual pleasure, then that's going to be challenging for your partnership. So I think I talk about that, not just about masturbation, but about fantasy life in general, which is, I think, a really interesting chapter in the book. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, we're going to get there because we'll get there right now. To be honest with you, I thought it was, for me, the most... Now, here we go. Okay. Exciting part of the book. And I think some of it was the intensity in which you also shared your excitement about sexual fantasies, and you call it erotic fuel. And you know, I, I want to hear you talk more about that and, and how you work with fantasies so you don't feel that you're in some way betraying your partner. You know, I, I should be focused on the deep love I have for my partner, not fantasizing about XYZ while we're having sex. Yeah, yeah. So... Anyway, that was a really hard chapter to write, and um, I think we rewrote that chapter maybe seven times, um, and uh, because it's really charged, there's a lot of really, really charged ideas in that chapter, and it's, um, you know, I think that it was treated with a lot of great respect, um, and and I think that there's still going to be people who read that book and hit that chapter and struggle with it. Um, 
because um, because it's you know uh, it's not something that we uh, are comfortable with and and one of the reasons is because most people's fantasy life is outside of what is politically correct. So let's just get that out of the way and just agree and know that. Um, you know, there's. I talk about a book that I read and this author I interviewed, um, Stanley Siegel, wrote this book, Your Brain on Sex. And he's a sex therapist for like 30 years in New York City. So he saw a lot of people and he was a really well-known writer on psychology today until he started actually writing about some of these ideas and they became uncomfortable with it and they took. They didn't just take him off of the column, but they took off everything he ever wrote. So it was kind of a big, it's just what I'm saying to you, it's very charged. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, but that said, I think that many people miss the most critical and um, exciting and passionate erotic fuel in their life when they when they don't allow themselves to dive into or at least a look at what's happening in their fantasy life. So one thing I learned from Stanley was that our fantasies evolve in us subconsciously as we become adolescent. So it's not like you pick them, right? There's no conscious action that happens, but rather it's the subconscious act of the brain that is taking some really painful history and we all have that when we're growing up. And, it, and, and, it, and you know, it could be an overbearing mother. could be a sense of abandonment. It could be um, a sense of powerlessness among peers, whatever. It's, we all have something that we bring to, to our adolescence. And that the brain, this the concept, then takes that material and tries to turn it into something pleasurable. And so, you know, an obvious example that you could look at is like how a girl who has a lot of shame growing up in church would then have this really erotic fantasy about having sex with a priest. I'm just saying, you know, that you can kind of see how that connects. Um, But for some of us, it's not that clear a connection. So somebody who has an overbearing parent might not come to the same fantasy of submission as somebody else who has an overbearing parent, right? It's not like A to B to C. It's not linear in that way because our brains are all unique and we do different things with them. But, you know, um, the premise is that if you start to, like, know or accept what that fuel is, um, even if it's something you might never share with somebody else, it's really going to, I mean, that's your access point for really intense pleasure. Um, How does somebody work with it? You know, if I were to share this fantasy with my partner, it might be very hurtful. So I'm not going to. I'm not going to yeah, say it to my right. partner. And I talk a lot about that in the book, about, you know, that, that for me, most of my fantasy life goes on between my ears. You know, and I don't talk about, I can't talk about it, even with my husband. I've tried a few times and it just, uh, I like no words come, you know. So um, I do give a couple of examples in there, you know. Um, sub, you know, let me just say this about fantasy, that, uh, you know, of all of the fantasies, and really if you want to learn about fantasy and, and just as a way to even start to think about what your own are, you know, there's so much erotica that's written for women even and, and for men and, you know, and current levels of pornography is not that erotic because it's really mostly, 
without story. Um, but but there is a lot of things available. But uh, of all the things that are out there, submission and domination, which is, you know, the whole Fifty Shades of Grey, right? I mean, we all have some version of that 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 cranks something in us. And um uh and so for me it was as simple as letting these really erroneous, sometimes frightening images happen for me when I was having sex. Instead of suppressing it, instead of turning it off, I just let myself look at it. And at first it was terrifying. I was like, oh my God, was I raped as a child? Or how, like, I couldn't even imagine how I had those ideas. Like, where do they come from? And then, like I said, I talked to Stanley and then I kind of calmed down about it because I, I realized that, you know, this is just something that my subconscious created and, and I have the, the responsibility and the, the right to use it however I want. So it's not like um, fantasizing. When I think about fantasy for me, I think about it as like historical fiction, right? Because like it's not like I'm with a different man or a different partner. It's like we're kind of caught up in these historical stories in places and times having sex that's very different than our married sex life that, you know, are all kinds of things, like things that are totally socially inappropriate, but that are pretty compelling, sexually compelling. Um, And so I just let them go by in my head. And that is, you know, they're never the same. It's not like the same story plays over and over for me. Um, And mostly I would say my husband doesn't know what those stories are. Sometimes I'll vocalize things and I think he kind of gets the gist of what's happening in me, but, um, but, you know, and, you know, even like one I talk about in the book is this idea of like having a third woman kind of join us that I would be able to direct. And that one, I think I've mentioned to him and we thought, oh, we could go to Vegas or, but, you know, the truth is that when you start to act out fantasy in 3D, there's so much at stake. You know, there are so many ways that that could result in a different, like create a different result than you would anticipate. And I don't advocate for that. And I actually really talk about in the book using caution about bringing fantasy into your day-to-day, like going into a dungeon or, I mean, people do it in all kinds of ways. A lot of people do it online. Um, For me, it's sufficient to have it in my head. Um, But what I would say is just as an advice about where to start is just stop suppressing it. Stop, like, turning away from it, which is, I think, what happens for a lot of people. You know, one of the through lines, if you will, in sex that works, and I think it's even apparent in this conversation, is your 30-year marriage, more than 30 years, and your four children, that you have found tremendously sexually satisfying at this point in your life. And it's kind of a statement that, you know, long-term monogamy can also be hot, passionate, interesting, and sexually fulfilling. And I think a lot of people have this idea that in long-term monogamous relationship, you know, sex just dies out and that's just the way it is. So my question to you is if you were going to summarize for our listeners what keeps a sexual life um, hot and alive in a long-term marriage. What is it, Wendy? Uh, So 
So I actually want to say I think it's a really great question. I so appreciate you asking it because there's so many books right now that are being written about like expiration dating on relationships and how you can't expect, you know, like all these reasons why monogamy can never work. And, you know, there's really a lot that's being written about it. And it makes me feel like some weird anomaly, but I don't think I am an anomaly. I think it's just a lack of of understanding. And so I would say two things. One is that, you know, my husband and I are very different people. Um, You know, he's a psychiatrist. He's very quiet, you know, in all the ways that I sort of seek out community and and putting myself in the world. He um, would rather spend time in the woods, you know, by himself. You know, I mean, we're very different in in many fundamental ways. And, And I think for us, one of the big things was that we never really tried to make each other like each other. You know, I mean, not like each other, like yeah. admire each other, but like we never tried to become like the other person, you know. And so I think that is one danger in marriage in general, where people are so averse to conflict that they give up all these critical parts of who they are to become more similar to their partner. And uh, neither of us did that, and neither of us asked our marriage that, to do that. So, you know, one of the consequences, which I think I talk about in the book, too, is how lonely it is to be married to him sometimes, especially now that my kids have gone. Um, you know, there was a lot of buffering space that ha- that I had with the children. But, you know, now that it's me and him again, we are, like, trying to figure out, you know, how to find this space where, you know, where he'll want to do anything that I want to do. Because really, you know, we don't, I mean, it's, I mean, we both enjoy nature. We enjoy good food. I mean, we do things together, but we're not like one of those couples that's just like always doing stuff together or interested in, in the same things, you know? Um, and I think that in some ways that makes us pretty passionate with each other. So I think that's one thing that's really important. But the other thing is, is that I, um, and it wasn't always like this. I mean, our sex life, and I talk about this in the book, you know, at the beginning was not that great. Um, and, in fact, it was so bad that I thought that it was going to go away um, before this turn happened in our marriage. Um, and I kept trying to convince myself that I could stay with it, uh, even if it were to go away. Um, but we had very long, uh, challenging Years, really, years of arguments about uh, who wanted who and what I call the initiation question. And every long-term couple, I think, has that problem. And I try to do some justice to that problem in the in the book. Um, but I think it's actually the problem that ends many marriages and certainly ends many sex lives um, because there's probably nothing that's more painful in a relationship to be turned away continuously or to or to turn away somebody um, uh, in an intimate way. And, uh, and we don't have a lot of skills around that space. Um, so I think coming, getting beyond that space where we were able to reach some level of forgiveness, which I share that story in the book, um, uh, was critical. That was a really critical thing. So, so the first thing I would say is, in a marriage, not trying to become so so not yourself and like the other person, that's kind of a passion killer. And then this problem about, you know, who wants who more and, you know, you got to get to the other side of that. 
so that that people don't feel rejected or less than or you know that's the thing that causes a lot of people to go looking for somebody else you know? well, let's talk about that the initiation question as you put it the initiation problem if you will who's initiating who wants who how do you suggest couples who find themselves in a situation like that no one's initiating everyone's well, you know both parties are too afraid at this point to initiate how do you get beyond that you know, there's, uh, I wish I had like some golden kernel that I could just say, this is the thing, you know. Um, but, you know, in my experience, what happened is that, um, and I still don't really know why it happened or how it happened. You know, I tell the story about how my husband came home from San Francisco and brought this gift of lingerie to me. And it, we were pretty deep into our marriage. And um, and he was like asking me to be that for him again after, you know, this long time. And, you know, partly we used to fight about sex a lot because I wasn't very good at knowing what worked for me. And so, and he wasn't really good. At, I mean, the truth is that we're not really very good at sex through most of our 20s. And we think we should be, but it takes a long time to learn how and what it is that works reliably for each of us, you know. So I would have an orgasm where we'd have some great orgasm together or something. And then, you know, we would think, oh, if we would do this in just this order, we could find this space again. But, of course, we couldn't, right? And um, and then he would come too soon, and then I would be just furious. I would just, like, want to kill him. And we would get into these huge arguments. And then he stopped it was so hard when it didn't work that it was easier for him to just stop wanting it, I think. And then and then I just had this terrible rejection problem about, like, feeling like, what is wrong with me? Why doesn't he want me? You know, that went on. I'm telling you, we were caught in this for years. And it was so painful. It was so painful and so challenging. And I hear this story from many people. I know this is a really common thing. Um, he gave me that lingerie and I decided to wear it and I decided to step into the dance with him again. And so as simple as that sounds, I think sometimes it is that simple that you decide that you're going to come back to this with new eyes, with courage, with an open heart and ask to be met. And then the other person has to meet you. Right, So both people really need to bring the same amount of courage. And then there's this exquisite um, forgiveness, which is, which is not something that we create, but it's something that we open to um, and that, that holds us. And, and we know it happens to us because we can't remember how it was before. It's like that just kind of recedes from view. And, and it's, uh, I think it's actually one of the most blessed divine spaces we experience with somebody else. It's what makes me believe in forgiveness. Um, but it's, but I also know that I don't control that. I can only like move towards it with a willingness to, to be held in that place. Um, so this is what I'm saying. It's like soul work, mm-hmm. you know, it's soul work. And, you know, so he stepped forward and I met him and then we had this crazy three week, like every night we're having sex affair. It was like, whoa, I got honeymoon cystitis like 17 years into my marriage. And um, and then it was like we never had that fight again. 
it just like stopped meaning that. We stopped having that meaning attached to that space. So I think a lot of couples don't get past that point. And then, um, and then that actually will kill your sex life. That, you know, and then you either become like you're just living together or you're, um, you know, and there's no intimacy or eventually somebody is having an affair with somebody else or, um, you know, I mean, and so there's those two pieces. And then, you know, the third thing is the fantasy thing that we were just talking about that, that, that the, that, you know, in this 30 year relationship, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm a different woman when I'm having sex. So I'm not the same girl that's talking to you right here. I don't really know who that wild girl is or where she hides when I'm not having sex, but I don't, I'm not afraid to be that woman with him. Like whatever comes, I let it come, and he and he meets me there, and so we have this crazy, like I have to cover my eyes kind of sex every time, every time I have sex, I have sex like that with him. So uh, sometimes I feel like the relationship container isn't even really big enough for the kind of intimacy we have because like I was telling you there's a lot of places where we don't meet each other um and you know it's you know I write this in the book even about how you know making that transition back from that wild woman to like the the wife that's going to go down and make dinner you know that's it's a weird space you know it's like uh, it's like uh, multiple lives which I think we all live with people we love anyway now, Wendy, you mentioned that at the end of Sex That Works, you offer a very extensive, actually, suggested reading list for people who are interested in furthering their sex education. And honestly, just that appendix in the book I thought was worth purchasing the book. Just for that, I thought it was so useful. But what I'm wondering here is if you could summarize for our listeners what you think some of the most important sex education, if you will, discoveries have been in the last couple decades. Like, God, I wish everybody just knew this or that. Maybe they don't have time to read all the books that are listed at the back of Sex That Works, but people should know this. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I think that uh, sexual anatomy is something that a lot of people don't understand. And most people have not learned. And in fact, I didn't even know much about it until, you know, because actually it wasn't really even something that was available until 10 years ago. You know, so then there were some really important books like The Clitoral Truth and other books like that where, that where I started to understand how, what sensations I was having for the first time. And so I think, you know, coming to a better understanding of your physical sexual anatomy and how much more similar men and women are than we, than we would think. You know, so that actually has been pretty fascinating. And I Can you tell me a little bit about The Clitoral Truth? Um, well, you know, the clitoris is this, like, when we were growing up, it was just this, like, thing that we thought was just on the top of the vagina, like this button that was, like, seriously enervated and highly charged. But what we know now is that there, the, clitor- the clitoral mound on the top of the vagina is actually connected to these legs that circle all the way back through the vagina and, you know, into the... Um, into where the G-spot is. 
So like so suddenly that G spot is not just some mysterious thing inside. It's like connected to I mean it's a whole structure. It's an it's an it's an anatomy system. And and if you compare that anatomy system to the male anatomy, you know, you see that 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 they're made much more similarly than they are differently. So, you know, uh so places that are erogenous that you don't think about in a man like behind his scrotum are erogenous for a lot of the same reasons that uh, that a woman would have this sensation inside her vagina that she's not quite sure why or how to find that. Do you know what I mean? So seeing pictures of that, I think, is really helpful. I mean, it, it was life-changing for me uh, to understand that. So that's one thing. And, you know, like we had talked about... Um, I can't even remember everything that's in that appendix, but I agree with you. It's quite lengthy. Um, um, you know, I, I, I've had mentors through all these years, people that I really deeply admire and that just really know so much about sexual relationships and are sex therapists or sexual, you know, I mean, they have the degree. And so I list a lot of those people's books, like Tammy Nelson. I kind of feel like I need to give her a shout out always. She's uh, written these books, uh, Getting the Sex You Want and other books, really amazing books. And, uh, you know, uh, she's somebody that I barely can keep up with. Um, Ian Kerner, I think, is another one that I've mentioned in there who writes some of the best, most beautiful books ever about um, oral sex and why it's important. Um, I'm curious, though, even outside of the actual specific book recommendations, if there are things you've learned that have been, you know, new findings or findings that maybe haven't been well distributed that people aren't aware of that really were kind of life-changing for you? Well, like I said, definitely the clitoral thing was pretty life-changing for me. Um, And, you know, I was like, I think, 44 before I, I read that. I mean, you know, I had been doing the work for quite a while. And, you know, I was like, how did I never know this? I couldn't believe that I never knew it. And, um, uh. You know, like I was saying in some of those books I just mentioned, you know, I I feel like some of the exercises that I've read in some of those sex books about how to say what you need to say sexually, I mean, that's how I learned to do it. When I talk about communicating and having the courage to say what you want, I learn that stuff in these books that I put in that thing. And, um, and, uh, and it was challenging and it was life-changing. So, um, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and, you know, I want to mention one other thing because um, I thought you were going to ask me this when you were asking about the appendix. But, you know, at the very end of the book, before the appendix, I talk about gratitude. And one other thing when you were asking me about the long-term relationship is that I, I talk about this at the very end of the book about, like, um, practicing the last time in your mind. So it's like one thing that happens in relationships, long-term relationships, is that you get to take people for granted and their annoying qualities overcome what you love about them. And one way that I learned to stop doing that was to imagine just for a minute that I would never see them again. Like this was the last time I was going to drop them off, that this is the last time he would drive away. And um, and then it would bring tears to my eyes, and 
and that it would teach me how to remember what I loved. And I feel like we have to get better at that practice um, if we're going to really open to our sexual potential. We have to get better at the idea that this is not a forever thing, you know, that, that this could really be the last time. And a lot of times when I have sex and I have this amazing sex, I sometimes start to cry when I think, what if, what if this is the last time? Because we never know the last time, you know. And, um, you know, some people say it's morbid, but I think it's actually a really genuine way to stay connected, to just keep yourself conscious of the fact that this this isn't like some, I mean, this life is short. It's so short. And so if we start to really appreciate how brief this time we have is, if if it does any one thing, it should make us want to love more. It should make us want to love better. You know, Wendy, there's something that I think has been implicit in our conversation that I want to ask you about because we've been talking about passionate sex in the context of a long-term committed relationship, which is, what do you see as the connection between sex and intimacy? Can't I have great sex without any real deep intimacy? Or in your work, do you see them as intertwined in some way? Um, well, I mean, my life kind of speaks for that, right? And and I'll tell people even when I hand them out free product, don't waste it on anybody you don't love. You know, what I, I mean, you know, all the experiences that I've had of um, casual sex in my life um, don't come close, anything near um, the, to the kind of sex I have with somebody that's invested in me and my life and, and shows up for me and, um, and cares about what happens to me. So, you know, that's, that's, what I, that's what I believe. I know that there are people who would argue that and would say that, you know, illicit and, and, and you know, exciting sex that you're kind of sneaking away for. You know, I mean, I know people get really charged by those experiences and they, and they, they have access to, you know, a pleasure mechanism that they can't find in their, in their long-term relationship. And I just think it's, it's kind of tragic because you get so much other baggage when you're hiding that, you know, there's so much else. So I just feel like it would be so great if we could learn how to build this into long-term loving. It would just be so much healthier. It would be so much easier on our, our nervous system if we could, like, actually really anticipate and, and, and want to grow sexually with the person that we love. And it makes everything else manageable, too. I mean, you know, I'm telling you, my husband would say that I'm annoying and he's annoying. And the fact that we have this <laughs> really this really great sex lets us manage, like, how different we are and how annoyed we get with each other, you know. And, you know, uh, and... You know, another thing we never talked about, but, you know, the sexual response mechanism is the only thing that we have access to in our life that sort of does a a, re, a system reset on the emotional, mental, spiritual level. And so I think that people who don't have that experience available to them, um, it's it's, you know, it's harder to stay as healthy because, you know, it was built into us for a reason. 
Now, just as a final question, and in a way, I think a kind of a, a summation, if you will, here. In the beginning of the book, you talk about how we can grow up sexually, that there's this possible, that we can grow up in all kinds of ways in our life. And sexually is also a way that we can grow up. And I'm curious if you were to characterize what it means to grow up sexually, what that is. Um, I think, you know, that it's sort of in a summation kind of way, all the things we've been talking about. Like, if you can get over this idea that, I mean, just come to terms with the fact that you are a sexual erotic person, just as a, as a step. And then be curious about that. Who, what does that mean? Start to ask real questions about it. And when it's challenging, bring an open heart of courage to it. And, and that you, um, you know, that you, that you trust that part of yourself, that you, that you allow that part of yourself to expand in whatever ways it's asking you. Um, and that might be different than the ways it asks me. Um, but, I think, you know, to the degree that we make peace with who we are um, is growing up sexually because such a foundational part of who we are is a sexual part of us. And, um, and you know, like I said, I believe that the soul is the erotic voice of us, at least in part. And, um, and so when we make space and we treat that part of us with respect, um, you know, we're more creative, we're more loving, we're more, we're more well in, in every way. I've been speaking with Wendy Sturgar. She's the author of a beautiful and inspiring new book called Sex That Works, An Intimate Guide to Awakening Your Erotic Life. Wendy, thank you. Thank you for putting all of the time, energy, heart, soul, and hotness into sex that works it's a it's a great book to read i learned so much from it thank you yeah well thank you tammy and i really am so deeply honored to be part of your sounds true family i've admired such a long time and i'm so grateful for this conversation so thank you sounds true.com many voices one journey thanks for listening